bunch of scientists. They can't handle what we saw in that chopper. For all I know, he could be one of those things. It is pretty hard to believe we both walked away from that crash. Yeah, I get that, I do. But... We're preparing a test. And then we figure out who's who. And welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the mutant films time burnt to a crisp in the snow. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time perfect imitation of my co-host, Andrew Phillips, maybe... Maybe not. Is that alright? right? (laughs) And with Halloween, is going to be on the horizon or in full flow at the moment? I don't know. Right. I can't remember. <laughs> Sometime round yeah, Halloween. Okay. And since it's Halloween, we'll look into the master of the horror genre, Ooh. John Carpenter, to review the underrated classic, The Thing's Awful Prequel. Yeah. It's not that thing. <laughs> it's the other thing. Thing one, thing two. <laughs> But is this prequel another underrated classic waiting to be unearthed? Or a messy imitation that needed far more time to complete the transformation? Find out beyond the trailer! 48 hours ago, we found something quite remarkable. What'd they find? There's a structure. In Antarctica. And a specimen. Really? Touching down. This is Kate Lloyd's Columbia Paleontology. Let me show you why you flew 10,000 miles. We estimate it's been here 100,000 years. I'm going to take a tissue sample. Do you really think that's a good idea? Yes, I do. You, my friends, will all be immortalized as the people who made this discovery. My God. Somebody was attacked. But it seems everyone is fine. Either someone miraculously healed themselves, or someone is not who they say they are. What's it doing to him? It's imitating his cells. I think this thing copies its prey and then hides inside it. What are you saying? Not all of us are human. Could be any of us. We can't let this thing leave. If it makes it out of here, millions of people could die.
After the huge successes of the Halloween Assault on Precinct 13 and the Fog remakes, studios were falling over themselves to create the next awful John Carpenter adaption. <laughs> Enter Universal's The Thing, a half-assed monster movie that's more schlock than shock. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is studio-mandated Ripley female in a horror show so rooted in its period that it bravely uses the technology available in the early 1980s to digitally render its digital threat. (laughs) But why have we nominated the Thing prequel for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies? Well, it is Halloween, so we thought we would keep with the horror theme following on from last week's episode. And because, well, this is something of a film that I've always wanted to cover on this show to really get across just how much I dislike it. (laughs) The Thing prequel is definitely one that you would refer to as forgotten. It only came out in 2011, but actually it's barely spoken about now. Yeah. The only thing I remember of The Thing was when we went to Comic-Con that year and it was advertised there and I think you'd already seen it. Uh, possibly, yes. Yeah, because was, uh, that was the end of the year, I think, we went to Comic-Con. Yeah. You remarked at the time how it was kind of spoilt by certain things, and then that's the last I heard of it. And it sometimes gets released as a double pack with the original thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only that's way that they it. actually make money off <laughs> yeah. of this film now. Is just You must rel- have this film. Yeah, exactly. It almost becomes a bonus extra yeah. when you buy John Carpenter's classic. So, I mean, do you have any past experience with the thing? I mean, what is your experience with the franchise in all? Because um, I imagine this is your first time actually watching the film then. Yeah, it's my first time watching the thing, but I've seen the thing before. <laughs> <laughs> my relationship with the thing, it doesn't go as far back as, like, say, Alien. Yeah. Which I did watch aged 11 or something like that. But I think I watched the thing, oh, probably, I was probably like 18, 19, I think, when yeah. I saw it first of the thing. I'd heard about it, mm-hmm. but never seen it. In fact, I'd read about it more than actually seen it. I think I had the, one of Empire's best DVD books. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the Thing DVD was in its top 50 or something. And there was a, it was talking about the documentary. Yeah, it's a fantastic documentary. Yeah, but... and it was talking about how they did the chest open. Oh, thing. yes, yeah. Um, and how, how they got it wrong the first time and it ended up looking like a fountain, mm-hmm. like a novelty fountain or something. <laughs> uh, so that was my experience of it. And then, yeah, I eventually bought the DVD. But yeah, I don't have any other experience with any of the other versions of it. I mean, I'd heard of the original, the thing from another world. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure I saw a clip of it at Universal Studios one time. Yeah. Unlike Alien, this is almost like a, it's a one film thing really it's not a it's it's a cult film but it's not really a franchise no no such. and there's very little space actually to make a franchise out no. of the thing even if john carpenter's film had been a huge success which it wasn't at the time mm. of release there are a couple of places that you could go with it you could expand on the mythology but actually it kind of works best mm. on its own and leaving those questions unanswered yeah yeah i saw the thing when I was in single digits, I think I saw it along around the same time as when I first saw Aliens, yeah. which I was about five or six years old. <laughs> and I saw the thing shortly after that. Yeah. So I can barely remember a time that I didn't know this film yeah. in a way. My parents were very lax when it came to movie violence because <laughs> yeah, these my, were the films that they liked. I think mine were the opposite. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I would have coped with watching The Thing at that kind of age. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, from a very young age, I'd seen the likes of Evil Dead, Aliens, uh, Terminator. <laughs> like I say, Terminator 2, I think I was like five or six, again, five or six years old. Yeah. So The Thing I'd seen, John Carpenter's The Thing, 
probably ranks in my top 10 films of all time. I think it's an absolute classic. I regard it very, very highly. And uh, I mean, when I went to even high school, I remember with a few of my friends, we were practically obsessed with the film. And we all knew the character names off by heart and used to quote the dialogue to each other as well and things like that. <laughs> uh, I, I've played and uh, the PlayStation 2 game, which um, I was terrible at. I've seen the other versions, I guess, including this one. I've seen The Thing from Another World. However, to say that um, I have that much kind of uh, history in terms of my relationship with the film, um, I still haven't read the original short story, Who Mm. Goes There, by uh, J.W. Campbell, is it? John W. Campbell? Yes. Yeah. John W. Campbell Jr.'s uh, novella. I've still never read it. And, in fact, that is something I am definitely going to rectify very shortly, probably as my holiday read while I'm away. (laughs) Yeah. Um, in fact, I've actually got the DVD of the thing in my eyesight. It's just behind you. Whereabouts? Just underneath High Fidelity. As if there was a, a more inappropriate pairing. I think it's because for some fucked up reason the Blu-ray doesn't have the documentary on it. Yeah. So I've just and, kept the DVD. And actually, that version that you have, that's the PlayStation 2 game cover. Oh, is it? They repurposed the uh, Markazan image from the PlayStation 2 game for the uh... DVD of the film. I think it was because it looked a bit snappier. Oh, there we are. Oh, yeah. There the, we the go. two faces from <laughs> the film we're about to talk about. Oh, yeah. We get to find out just how those, uh, how one face became two. I As guess. if we really wanted to yeah, know. Yeah, because I, I, those were questions that I wanted answered, damn it. And at the end of the day, that's kind of hitting the nail on the head with this film as to why, as to what's wrong with this film. Yeah. It's like, it, at the end of the day, it's one of those films that's like, did we really need to know this? Yeah, it's essentially answering questions that are either already explained or didn't need answering yeah. it's it's very much like the star wars prequels yes i mean we, we live in a time now as well where mystery is um underused in film today yeah, yeah. and sometimes mystery is taken for granted i honestly think and i i mean i don't mean to heap the blame in a particular direction but i think the rise of the honest trailers and what's wrong with culture of picking out plot holes and saying oh, well, uh, what's with this thing as criticism? Yeah, to yeah. pick plot holes as criticism is the reason we don't get enough mystery anymore. It's because if you leave something unexplained, it opens you up for that kind of biting social media criticism because whether we like it or not, whether it's just funny or not, and whether they intend it to or not, these kind of honest trailers, what's wrong with videos, I think are influencing criticism in the wrong direction and yeah. influencing the way people think about films as well. I think it's not even that. I think it's also the fact that as time has gone on, films are being creatively controlled by business yes. people. Yeah, yeah. And the way that the business mind works, they like to see the whole thing spread out from yeah. beginning to end so you know exactly what you're getting and exactly mm-hmm. what makes this thing up. But obviously, with a create with a genuine creative mind and how this works, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's this type of thinking, this type of mind that is uh, undermining the creative process and yeah. why we are getting films that explain everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, that leads us to the thing prequel. I mean, uh, I I do have experience with this film. I made a video just before this film was released about what I th- thought was going to be wrong about it, just by judging the marketing. And the clips that they had released, and that turned out to be pretty much on point. <laughs> um, and that can be viewed on YouTube. I think it was under the name Popcorn Nightmares, mm-hmm. and and it's, you can you can view that on YouTube still and uh, listen to my silky smooth voice <laughs> many <laughs> eons ago. <laughs> 
And that still stands now. I mean, I'm going to probably regurgitate a lot of the stuff that I thought then because watching it again now, I still largely think the same about this film. Like, say, I, I don't think the thing demands a sequel, but there are places to go, and this is definitely a missed opportunity. Yeah, this is not the place to go. No, no, definitely not. But before we do get into the thing about the thing, it's time for us to uh, do as we do on all our Best Forgotten Movies episodes, which is set the scene. I was about to say the director's name, but I have real trouble. It's like Mathis Van Helsing. Matthias Man Van Helsing. <laughs> I'm great. That's Ma- it. Matthias, Matthias Van Helsing. Matthias Van Helsing. That's yeah. his name from now on. First off, we must ask the question to begin. Who goes there? And that takes us as far back as John W. Campbell's Jr.'s uh, novella, which was released in 1938 and uh, published in Amazing Science Fiction magazine. So just to talk about which film has been the most faithful adaption of John W. Campbell's release, I'd say it's probably John Carpenter's film, mm. which um, hits many of the same beats as the novel, but also does away with a few of the goofier elements, like the creature's ability to read minds and project thoughts. But John Carpenter's film is otherwise, it's quite faithful. It has many of the same character names as well. And Who Goes There, though, was first loosely adapted by producer Howard Hawks and director Christian Nieby? Nieby? I don't know. but um, this This is one of those films in which um, Howard Hawks takes a producer credit, but it's largely known that he was in the director's chair for the large majority of this film's production, much in the same way that Steven Spielberg was uh, for Poltergeist. He was in Toby Hooper's... I know, in in Hush 30, yeah. The director's guild will hear you. Yeah. Have you seen The Thing from Another World? No, uh, apart from that that clip you just showed me before with The Thing on Fire. Yeah, I recommend everybody to check (laughs) it out. It's it's probably my favourite fire stunt ever committed to film because yeah. it does look genuinely dangerous and even watching it now knowing that everybody got out okay it's still I, I still fear for everybody in the shot i think it's more of a miracle than anything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one got hurt it's essentially just a man bursting into a room being set aflame and then multiple times gasoline poured on him yeah like yeah. threw at him from buckets time yeah. after time and then the fire spreading to other areas yeah uh, narrowly missing other characters <laughs> That whole scene, it feels like the scene from the control room in Aliens as well, in that it has a motion tracker as well. Like, mm. The characters are looking at a motion tracker knowing that it's coming, and somebody's reading it out as it's coming to the door in front of them. And I was like, this this is Aliens. This is where James Cameron's clearly got that Aliens control room scene from. It works so well. But uh, yeah, even though it's a bit hokey, it's a bit goofy, it turns out that the thing in this film is... Uh, the as an alien is a vegetable that they <laughs> essentially fry at the end of the film with electricity. But I can see how it's gone on to inspire other films in the horror and sci-fi genre. As we both know, John Carpenter would then go on to uh, adapt the material once more in the 1982 horror film The Thing. It was John Carpenter's first studio film and his first time working with a studio budget. According to Wikipedia, I guess. This was like <laughs> his biggest budget at the time with $15 yeah. million. Dollars. And so there was a lot kind of riding on it. It was him breaking out into the big time. Even though he had made plenty of like solid genre hits in the past. So, I mean, this is one that we've we've both seen. We both have experience yeah. with The Thing. Unfortunately, it wasn't a hit for John Carpenter at the time. Yeah, it was one of the many casualties of 1982. Yeah. Uh, one of the many casualties following the release and phenomenon of E.T. 
and pretty much every other film that came out yeah. around that time just uh, suffered quite badly. Yeah, the box office was dominated by an alien from another world, but it wasn't John Carpenter's no. particular alien. No, particularly The Thing, Blade Runner. Yes. Which both offered very downbeat visions of science fiction. Yeah. Just didn't, unfortunately, ride at that time because everyone was very much in a more positive mood. Mm-hmm. And I think people wanted the more positive mood just because of the times that they were living in. Yeah. I think it was more the case uh, it was just badly timed. I think it would, if it had come out at any other point, it may have been better received, I think. Yeah, I mean, you only have to look as far as um, how war films are received while particular wars are ongoing. Like, I, I always look at how the films about the Iraq war that came out whilst the Iraq war was kind of still happening. And... Um, how they were received they bombed out including like films like uh, the hurt locker and it's always because of that reason that the thing is clearly suffered for as well which is that people go to the cinema to escape these things especially when the real world itself is scary so when we look at the thing being released in 1982 along with blade runner and seeing that they have these they're much like darker visions of the world it's like that's not what people are going to the cinema to see especially when they can have the option of seeing et a very optimistic sentimental and fantastic spielberg film it's like of course they're gonna avoid that thing that makes us think about depression and, Mm. and and the thing it's paranoia and about suspecting your fellow friend of being an other so yeah i can see why people would want to escape that it it continues in history and cycles we continue to see it today so yeah the thing was a i wouldn't say a giant bomb but um i'll save the figures until later it was just very disappointing wasn't it yeah it was and it actually um it wasn't until i guess home video that it became something of a hit it was Mm. already talked about in certain circles the horror community welcomed it i remember reading at the time and it's like since then and with home video it just started to circulate amongst the right people and until today in which it's now regarded as a classic and often makes these kind of hundred best films Mm. of all time lists it's ranked quite highly i would say but unfortunately it was the start of carpenter's rocky relationship with studios yeah and then going back into the independent scene and uh yeah i think also again it's like contributed to the fact that he's not really made mm-hmm. any films for quite some time i think the underperformance of this film really kind of sucked the wind out of his sails and although he's made some um i would say good films since it's certainly a downward slope a downward curve yeah. towards it. Uh, I think it was just several... Like This was the first of several films that yeah. the wind was slowly taken out of his sails. Another notable one is uh, Big Trouble in Big Little Trouble China. Big Trouble in Little China. Which yeah. was his sort of return to the studio system that didn't work either. Another film that's due to be remade with Dwayne The Rock Johnson mm. in the lead role. It's weird how all of these films are almost like before their time. Mm. Now they're being regarded as the classics. And they yeah. continue to get the classic treatments on home video. Like, we've ju- we got the Arrow video. Yeah. A great transfer of Big yeah. Trouble in Little China. And I reckon we'll probably get another bland remake of... Yes. <laughs> It'll I probably be a, a one that takes itself far too seriously as well. That mm-hmm. misses the point. It'll definitely be a remake that misses the point of the original film. Because we can't have The Rock Johnson taking the mick out of himself. No. Even if don't. The Rock wants to, yeah. the studio won't let them. I like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I think he's a charismatic individual and an enthusiastic individual. But the thing is about Jack Burton, which is the character I imagine he will be playing, is that Jack Burton 
he's not the hero. No. He's a... He's the hindrance. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But it's whether they'll let him play that kind of part. Yeah. But given it's The Rock, I don't think the studio will go in that direction. Yeah, that's the thing at the end of the day. Is he too cool? Mm. In a kind of overt... Is he too, like, overtly cool? If you get me over the top, cool. Mm. Uh, not to say that Kurt Russell isn't, but I think he's always had a hand with those type of characters anyway. Yeah. So, let's cut to 2004. And after their success remaking Romero's Dawn of the Dead, we then move on to producers Mark Abraham and Eric Newman as they began looking for the next big property to revive and remake. And so they began looking through Universal's libraries and happened across The Thing. And Universal wanted a remake. They just wanted a straight remake. But Abraham and Newman managed to persuade them round to thinking that a prequel would be a good idea. Because that was what they envisioned. I think they likened it as uh, if you if you remade the thing as a straight remake, it would be like painting a moustache on the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Which, to be honest... Ironically, they kind of do yeah, anyway. Yeah. But... <laughs> But this wasn't actually the first time somebody came about to try and make something of the thing because we also have somewhere in between there the Frank Darabont miniseries that never actually come to pass. That was with Sci-Fi Channel. I've actually read the script of the Frank Darabont miniseries, at least the first episode, and it was originally going to take place in a small like Midwestern town in America. And it's like talking about what would happen if we took this thing to its logical conclusion and introduce the i guess the thing virus into a populated area much Mm. like the characters and the thing were trying to stop from happening and um it was really interesting i had a a good few scenes and it added more to the um the mythology and the history of the thing and i guess it did something different with it and embrace those kind of body snatcher elements whilst also being a prototype the walking dead for frank darabont yeah But um, ultimately, sci-fi passed on that because they deemed it far too expensive. It's sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. They deemed it too good to be on their network. Well, this was when sci-fi were making television series like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. But that was also a series that they... um, I think that's more of an exception to the rule now, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, they they had the option of making Blood and Chrome, which was a prequel to the Battlestar Galactica series. And instead, they just made a film that was originally intended to be a pilot episode. And they... uh, they just released it as a DVD rather than make the series because they rebranded themselves as sci-fi with a Y yeah. and decided that they were exclusively going to make films like Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus and Sharknado and, and all that. Yeah, so because that's where the money was. Yeah. Which is a shame. And and Battlestar Galactica and things like Frank Darabont's The Thing would have been too expensive. I think Frank Darabont's version of The Thing just simply came at the wrong time mm. for sci-fi. If it would have been slightly earlier, we might have seen it. Or even slightly later for another network. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, moving back to Eric Newman and Mark Abrahams, and keeping with the Battlestar Galactica theme, actually, they actually, um, after they had brought on the director, Mathis Van Helsing, whose name we can't really (laughs) say, um, they brought aboard Ronald D. Moore to write the script. Uh, Ronald D. Moore, who was behind the uh, Battlestar Galactica revival. However, the studio had a few notes. And those notes, As they always do. Yeah. The couple of mandated characters. It had to have a female in it, like a Ripley character at its core. It also had to have MacReady's brother, just to give it a kind of family tie to John Carpenter's film, because being a prequel wasn't enough. It had to have a family member in it that we have never heard of before. 
<laughs> I think it was just so that they could call a character McCready. Yeah. And that was simply it. I read the first half of that script and literally the only reference to the character being McCready's brother is the fact that he has a picture on his desk of him and Kurt Russell's McCready <laughs> stood together in the snow or something. A kind he, of blink and you miss it reference. Yeah, he is also a pilot for yeah. a different group of people. I'm taking that's Joel Edgerton's character. It is, and that was the character that eventually became Joel Edgerton, who is still playing it quite McCready. Yeah, he is, yeah. Even like, who's the most Kurt Russell-looking person we can find? <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, all that shit was dropped, and uh, they eventually brought in the writer, Eric Hessier? Hessier? Eric Van Helsing. <laughs> Eric Van Helsing. He is behind the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. A classic name, if Whoop you've ever heard one. Day. I know. And also, recently, I saw Lights Out, which uh, was a uh, strong directorial effort, but also uh, a kind of shoddy dial- script for dialogue. But mm. Generic. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I would say so. So, yeah. And then Mathis Van Helsing was involved <laughs> because... Um, he had a project with the producers of Dawn of the Dead, which it was a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, and it was going to be set in Las Vegas. I think it was going to be called Army of the Dead, and that eventually fell through. And then when he found out that they were making the Thing prequel, he actively pursued it as his next directorial uh, effort. This is actually his directorial debut, and um, in that way you can see that this is not so much evident of his work as a director, but more so just a studio film. Yeah. I think yeah. they've just needed somebody who would just do what they would say, just mm. to channel themselves through. And that's essentially what he stood for. And I know that this is a film that he has not spoke fondly of since. I think this is a film where, even though they've not gone too far from the uh, from the original, it looks like during the production they had good intentions of making yeah. a film that was at least faithful to the methods mm-hmm. and feel of the original version uh, so at least it would feel a piece with the 1982 thing i mean going down to obviously the fact that it's obviously a prequel set in the same time period they shot it on film yeah it uses the old universal logo yeah to make it look like it came out say a couple of years after the original thing yeah and went as far to have pretty much all the creature effects on set done practically and then it looks as if because of the uh, the lack of clout in the director and probably the producers as well, the studios basically snowballed them into making it more of a conventional horror film of the yeah. time. And it's really stuck between two stalls and comes off worse for it because, uh, it look, yeah, it definitely looks as if like the studios just looked at the film going, nah, this is not what we want. Yeah. And then done their own thing. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah, I think that's exactly what has happened with this film because this was a film that had heavy reshoots and uh, during the actual production of the film, ADI were on set for, well, for all of the creature effects stuff. But I do, I have read that in the reshoots, they weren't even asked to really come back. Mm. And so people are acting against nothing mm. where it's something digital will be added later. Mm. Uh, so it's clear that they Universal just simply lost faith with the idea of practical effects, which is strange, but considering that the thing is a touchstone in many people's lives, in many special effects artists' life, of being like the special effect, the monster movie, the special effects driven yeah. monster movie with I these mean, practical people, creations. Even people I've met who don't even like the film that much, they even appreciate 
what they did. Yeah. I mean, even if they don't like it as a film, uh, they still think that the creature effects are quite cool. Mm-hmm. Whereas this has nothing to offer. I mean, even with the effects, it would have still been a uh, a very safe film. Yeah. That wouldn't have had that much interest, but it still would have had something that grabbed you. It was yeah. still had some sort of distinguishing factor. Well, I agree with you. I think that's the exact word to, to describe it. If they would have gone with this, is that it would have been able to distinguish itself from the crowd by having practical effects because today that's practically unheard of. In today's world, it is CGI everywhere. I mean, I think even horror is, is marred with a lot of CGI. And they had the opportunity to make a rather large budgeted, for well, relatively large budgeted monster movie with practical effects, mm-hmm. much like they did in the old days. You know, yeah. they, they had the opportunity to do that, and instead they simply made it like any other film that you can see today. Yeah. And, but essentially made it a lesser product. Yeah. There's other things as well. It does come back to the fact that I think the studio wanted a, a straight remake, which I think also channels into the fact that they use the CGI because they basically just want to make a modern version of, yes. of the thing or what they think is a modern version. And again, modern doesn't always equal good but i think there's a lot of confusion in terms of the fact that they wanted a straight remake and the fact that they just called it the thing yeah which is a really confusing decision yeah because from a market point of view it's uh, a bonkers decision because it basically says to the average audience goer that this is a remake Mm -hmm. which at the time, and, and it's still proven now that people don't like remakes and yeah. they don't actually make that much money. You've got the odd one that does, which studios seem to think, oh, it's still a good thing to do, yeah. even though it's not. And, and I'd say more remakes fail than that actually succeed. Yeah. But then the fact that it's a, a actually a prequel, why? I yeah. don't know why they just didn't give it a, like a subtitle or something. Well, that's the thing. It's I weird. mean, it's definitely a film that falls between two posts of being a prequel or a remake. And you can see that the studio was certainly pushing for it to be a remake. And honestly, if I had to... I mean, all I can say is, okay, chronologically, it is technically a prequel. But this is a film that actually hits all of the same beats as the original. Yeah. It's similar people in the same place at the same time doing the same things, but with half of the intelligence. The half Norwegian of the creativity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... um it doesn't take advantage of the opportunity to do something different. It doesn't develop the mythology of the thing in any way or the history of it. It doesn't give you much more other than, I would say, like, say, a glimpse inside the ship, which comes later on. Instead, they just offer you the same thing as John Carpenter's The Thing. So even though it is a prequel, on a story note, on a structure level, it is just hitting all the same beats. And it's answering questions that have already been answered in the first yes. film which is the main problem with it because when you go through the norwegian base in the original film you can kind of piece together what's happened yeah and then obviously the fact that the exact same thing happens on the american base exactly uh, you can pretty much deduce exactly what happened and the fact that you've got a film that tells you exactly what happened it's just a, a complete non-entity at yeah. the end of the day because it's not um because it's locked in by that prequel status it can't veer too far away from mm-hmm. what's already been established in the first film well it's like if you listen to any of the um interviews with the directors or the producers they often talk about things like 
oh, that axe that's in the door, you're going to find out how that axe got in the door. And that creature that's outside, burnt in the snow, you're going to find out that got outside there. And they're all kind of like macro level details. They're like zoomed in, you know. It, no, nobody's asking those specific yeah. questions. In terms of the general question, what happened to these people at this Norwegian base, John Carpenter's the thing answers that question by showing us with the American crew. Nobody leaves John Carpenter's the thing saying, yeah. oh, but I still wonder what happened yeah. at that base. And, and it is such a macro thing because, I mean, I've seen the thing quite a few times and it's like, I can't remember where the fuck that axe is when they look through exactly, the door. It's yeah. like, why is that important? Yeah. And it's like, oh, what drove that guy to cut his wrists at his um, radio desk? Yeah. You know, and it's, um, we get to they see that. Well, they don't really show us either. No, no, they don't show us. They just show us him vaguely scared in one shot. Yeah. And then he's he's already dead by yeah. the next one. But they, they even show that specifically with a character in John Carpenter's The Thing. Windows commits suicide. He burns himself to death rather than become The Thing. Yeah. It's like all these questions, all these setups in John Carpenter's film are answered by its end. Yeah, they're mirrored to yeah, say, exactly. like, this is what these other guys would have gone through. Exactly, yeah. Again, that's how it just ends up acting as a uh, an unintentional straight remake, Yeah, even though it's thinking that it's a prequel. Which is why I liked the idea of Frank Darabont's version, taking it beyond the environment of the Yeah, I think you need to take it forward, snow. not yeah. backwards. I mean, that's the problem with a lot of prequels anyway. There's very few prequels, again, that really succeed because they're generally locked in by what's gone before. Yeah. And they can't veer too far away. Oh, obviously, Star Wars prequels being the exception, but they're shit in a completely different way. <laughs> so, And they are still locked in by the fact that they have to have Darth Vader in the seatbelt. Yeah, end. yeah. And I do think that had this film succeeded, had Van Helsing's... Um, the thing Van Helsing's the thing. That... The sequel to it would have been just a straight remake of the thing. It would have been the same film over again. I do imagine it would have been, because which would also have been called the thing. <laughs> <laughs> the thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not surprised that they just didn't call it, like the thing from another world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't they call it? Because that's there's even a little homage to the, yeah. the design of the creature from the thing from another world in the creature that they find in the ice so yeah why not call it the thing from another world yeah because now it'd be like the thing no not that one <laughs> this one yeah it just serves to just add confusion to anybody actually speaking now about it yeah. yeah i just watched the thing oh no uh, not that one the yeah. other one <laughs> we've already discussed some of the faults i mean I, uh, we're going to start discussing a few more with the characters i think the next one is because not only do we have the McCready character with um, with Joel Egerton, who only really serves to take on that McCready role, mm. but we also have another, yet another, for the second week running, like studio-mandated Ripley yeah. female, who's kind of figuring out everything before everybody mm. else, but is still, like, ignored, you know, before taking charge. Yeah. Her arc is essentially Ripley's, in a, in a way. Yeah. I'd say her role is less offensive than in AVP that we oh, did before. Certainly, I mean, it's, yeah. It's definitely more of a character. I mean, I have no issue with her, like, obviously, with, with having a female lead, and I think she does a fine job. I think the main problem that undermines her character is that no fucker listens to her at all, yeah. which seems to happen in every single fucking horror film. And it's just like, why are these characters being so fucking stupid? 
I mean, the thing that sets the thing, like John yeah. Carpenter's the thing apart, is the fact that these characters aren't stupid. Yeah. There's more legitimate reasons, there's better reasons as to why things go wrong. Yeah. Other than someone going, oh, I want to do this because I want to do this. So, like, yeah. the, the whole, the, what's it, the Sander character that well, I'm going to call Davidoff because <laughs> that's the only film I've ever seen him in playing Davidoff in yeah. World's Not Enough. But where she's saying, oh, we need to make sure this creature is quarantined before we do anything else. And the guy went, no, I just want to drill into it now. Yeah. And you're just going, no, why are you doing this? Yeah, just, you deserve to die. It's just stock horror movie stupidity. Well, you have just touched upon the reason in which I think these characters fail on a real fundamental level. And that is, when we compare it to John Carpenter's The Thing, what we are given there is a set of very authentic, very real yeah characters they are taking on the character style of alien in that they are like the space truckers yeah, yeah. they feel like everyday working class joes and in that way i remember that there were a few criticisms throughout that film for the characters being indistinguishably working class and i love that about it because yeah, it feels kind of real the point. Yeah, yeah exactly and it amplifies the paranoia when it eventually comes across because you feel like you're watching real people in that way it's, it makes you think about the people you're with you know which mm. one could be the thing when you compare that to what's presented in this prequel what you are presented is as you have said a series of horror tropes a series of horror stereotypes. As I said, we have our Ripley character. And already because of that, because we recognize these characters not as real people, but as tropes and stereotypes, and we recognize them from other films, it already distances ourselves mm. from the cinema. We have already put ourselves at a distance from those characters. Yeah. But I mean, even just in the way that the thing organism gets into the base, in the John Carpenter version, the creature ends up on the base through them not understanding how the creature operates. Yeah. And it's not a threatening thing either, because obviously they find the dog, which is obviously being chased, mm-hmm. and there's a whole misunderstanding, and obviously they, they accidentally shoot the other guy because he's shooting at them. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the reason that it gets into the base is an entirely innocent one. Yeah. Because it's in the form of a cute dog. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in this, it's a big fuck-off alien monster yeah. in ice. It's one of those things where you just go, if you're an actual person, it's like, oh, we better not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you're accepting a dog into your base, it's a little bit more, one, realistic, and two, easier to understand as to why they would do that. Yeah. Whereas it's... in this, it's just like, you're just being stupid, he's being stupid, why the fuck are you doing that? Yeah, yeah. It's not an accident that a dog has been chosen as the kind of... Um the host of the creature to begin John Carpenter's film with. Mm. It's a dog because it's adorable. And anybody in a similar... Who doesn't like dogs? Who doesn't like dogs? Anybody Mm. in a similar situation faced with a helpless animal that two people are trying to kill, you're going to stick up for the helpless animal. Mm. And already the thing has bought your trust and and it's it's already got you at a disadvantage straight from that opening scene. With this film, it's their stupidity. It's their stupidity as characters that puts them at a disadvantage. Mm. Even though the film goes out of its way to say, hey, look, we're being retro. The seeds for failure are sown from uh, the very beginning. Yeah. You get the base pulse of the of the original score, which, I mean, I don't mind so much because it obviously is referencing yeah. that and you, you kind of sense that, yeah, something is wrong and everything. But the first thing is the drop of the snowmobile into the gorge. Yeah. The way that that is executed is uh, 
really not very good. No, no, it's it's, it's really quite obviously like again it's CGI again as yeah. well. Like it getting wed and it's and it gets wedged in a very hokey Hollywood way as well. <laughs> yeah, considering they've really got it just from the logo onwards and the fact that it's shot on film and and the, the music that from the very first few seconds of the film you can see that the filmmaker has intended to go and really try and match the the feel and look of the of the first yeah. film as much as possible and then this has completely gone and undone it straight away yeah yeah and you, and you know from that point onwards ah this ain't gonna qu- this is gonna not quite be one thing or the other yeah if it throws authenticity out very early on in the film yeah you are right it's like one of the staples of that <laughs> the way it falls is a very kind of hollywood way and it's just the way that they place the camera like the yeah the, like the virtual camera is placed like low angle looking up at it. yeah i mean i think it's always a mistake and i think a lot of dops especially nowadays when they can see like learn from the mistakes and things if you're putting a camera in an inaccessible place, yeah. no matter how good the shot looks, it's always going to look fake because it goes beyond yeah. the uncanny valley. Yes. If you've got no point of reference, the brain automatically rules it out. Yeah, it goes, this, this isn't right. Yeah. This isn't so right. It's always going to say something's wrong here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this falls into that trap. It does. And straight from the off as well, straight from those early scenes, you know that something's wrong even as a faithful prequel because it doesn't actually tie up to John Carpenter's film all that well in regards to continuity because there are things that we see in Carpenter's film such as the Norwegian crew standing around the alien craft in the snow yeah on the footage which is a nod to the thing from another world which they blow out the ice mm. from that area with explosives and that is how they reach the alien craft. Whereas in this version, none of that is ever seen. We never get to see those kind of early experiments that mapping out. And it's also revealed that it's not, in fact, an explosion that kind of reveals this craft. It's the craft itself lifting out of the uh, mm. out of the snow, turning on. For a film that strives to be, in terms of continuity, it's meticulously made to relate to John Carpenter's film, they have massive holes like that. In yeah, because then it's like, wait a minute, if the craft can actually physically take off, why didn't it take off? Why did the creature even have to get out? Yes, yeah. And it's just like, oh, it's just... <laughs> I thought this was meant to be a crash landing. Yeah. And it can't take off again. That's the whole point. The fact that... It, it means, uh, fuck. You know, that, and also, the, the, the really fundamental thing is the fact that we see our main character not on the base already they saying they found something i'm sorry but why the fuck does the american base not know about this because i'm pretty sure in antarctica with all the bases that are on there they all communicate with each other yeah why the fuck do they not know about this mm-hmm. especially when they're contacting out for yeah. help i i would have much preferred it if it was a much more kind of like a greater sense of paranoia about them try or or greater sense of pride in them claiming this for themselves yeah yeah kind of, let's keep it all in house until we know what we're dealing with yeah, yeah. but instead they're just contacting like the real world and also i don't like the idea of showing the real world yeah it should have just film. been why couldn't she have just been there anyway exactly yeah because another thing about john carpenter's film is there's a great sense of isolation because yeah. we never get to yeah. see beyond the base really other than a norwegian base yeah but um we never get to see beyond that and straight from the off we are isolated we are in the cold we are with those characters mm-hmm. in this film it establishes the location and then cuts back to the real world it cuts straight out of mm-hmm. it so we've already got rid of all that kind of tension and all that sense of isolation mm-hmm. because we know the real world is just 
just beyond the frame. Yeah. It's just there. If they can just weather this storm, it'll be fine. Obviously, we know that they won't weather the storm because it's a prequel. <laughs> we know how it's going to end. I mean, that's also the same problem. You know how it's going to end. And again, the film takes great strides at either fucking up its own continuity or being so tied to the events of what they find in the original film yeah. that it has no room to really breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then anything else that they offer is stuff that we don't need to see. Yeah. And going back to something you said as well, as um, as a plot hole in that why does the creature leave the craft when the craft is perfectly operatable the next thing that i really have to bring attention to is that the creature in this film is dumb yeah and for a creature whose whole existence relies i mean fundamentally relies on stealth and perfect imitation it seems very ready to reveal itself at a moment's notice sometimes in front of groups of people <laughs> um, I mean, if we look at Carpenter's film, it doesn't reveal itself until the the very moment, the very second it is specifically discovered yeah. as being a single person, that's when it reveals itself. Because otherwise, it's staying where it's warm. Yeah. And that film sticks to that whole thing all the way through. Whereas with this film, it's like, a, for instance, there's a scene in which a helicopter full of people is leaving. <laughs> this, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character has discovered that one of them might be the thing. So she simply waves the helicopter down. In Carpenter's film, the helicopter would have landed. The group would have been assembled. She would have said what had happened. All the while, they would have been looking at each other with shifty eyes. Mm. In this film, her waving at the helicopter is enough to disturb the thing yeah. so much it reveals itself and crashes the helicopter. Mm. Which is, again, it's completely against the character that is established in Carpenter's film. And we get instances of that time and time again. Yeah, well, like, why would it cause itself to have a crash? It's the whole point of it is to try and survive. Exactly. And then there's a scene in which uh, Kate, again, says to a group of people what she thinks happened and why she thinks that helicopter crashed. And they say, oh, they're going to go and contact the other American base for help. Which is exactly what the thing wants. It wants more warm bodies. So rather than just allowing that to happen, it tries to attack Kate and gets found out again and they decide, actually, let's stay here and not contact anyone. It's constantly its own undoing time and time again. And the only reason is really because somebody at the studio is saying, you know what, we've gone too long without actually showing the thing here. We need to show the creature again. (laughs) Um, In Carpenter's film, it's like there's these massive slow gaps, like huge gaps between showing the creature and it's because all oh, that whole time you're just building up the tension. I think I, I mentioned in an article it was like a punchline to a joke, you know, and that's what it is. The, yeah, the reveal is a punchline. In this film, it's like the punchline just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming, and then it becomes the gag. And that is why I think in this film it's essentially stupid. It's dumb. Yeah. And that's going beyond like uh, the CGI, the way that it looks. I mean, because it it does not look good. The fact that the effects don't look good just impacts on the problems because i think i said even if the effects look good yeah you would think oh the film has good effects but it has still has all these issues yeah but the fact that it has shit effects as well just makes it doubly shit because it's like it doesn't even work on that level yeah and that was not even enjoy it for that yeah and that wasn't always the case as well as um as you've seen as well yeah and that's the real shame like i just don't i don't understand why the studio would have lost faith in the practical effects other than the fact that, oh, 
that's not what other studios do. Yeah. We should do what other studios do because uh, that's not what sells right now. I don't understand because if you watch the, the ADI reel of the, the Thing effects, they look amazing. Yeah. They look really, really and, good. And this is in like harsh workshop yeah. lighting. Yeah. They, they are not on set. They are not being lit for on set and for in camera. And they look great. Especially when you can you can see the end result and just go, oh yeah, that was a fucking great decision. Mm-hmm. And also the thing, like just even just the thinking on a marketing point of view, because The Thing is a cult film and it's got quite a big audience, you want to be attracting that audience yeah i mean you can attract all the young people as well but you need to be attracting that core audience that love the thing because it is quite sizable but the fact that they are immediately alienating all those people and just instead concentrating on the young people who couldn't give a shit anyway because it's just yet another horror film in their eyes it's just imbecilic it's, yeah. it's ridiculous because all you are doing all you are succeeding in doing is creating a poisonous reception for the film yeah and so you're not going to get the audience beyond that core audience because nobody's going to be saying to anybody else oh you need to go see that film there's going to be no word of mouth if you get that core audience that love the thing you're going to get more than that yeah they're going to bring more people to it yeah. and i think uh, time and time again we get these studios that miss the fact that actually making a good film is uh is <laughs> is much better for them in terms of longevity with cult audiences there is a line to be drawn yeah I and mean, you do get films that do pander far too much to that kind mm-hmm. of thing but you need to sort of get that balance of going hey this is something that the fans are gonna like yeah but at the end of the day we have to do our own thing as well yeah but this goes completely the other way around it does it yeah just doesn't even care about what fans think of it really no absolutely not i think it, this film has a gr- or at least the studio behind this film have a great disrespect for the fans and also for the hard work that adi put into this because yeah um they are essentially been on set and put in this a series of great visual practical gags mm. that have every single one of them been augmented or completely overwritten by cgi digital mm. mapped versions of them i mean me and the knowledge that this had happened when i was watching the film i was trying really hard to see which bits of the film were actually theirs and there's so little yeah, that's that's actually intact. That's probably zero. That's actually intact. Yes, I would say the closest we get is to the the alien autopsy scene, mm. which even that has still clearly been augmented digitally. Yeah, it's still got a couple of. Uh, it's got that kind of digital sheen. Yeah, to it. I um I read an interview or saw an interview with um, Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis, in which they talk about the kind of thinking that they're up against in their line of work because they actually have decided to start making their own films with practical effects because they're finding that increasingly that they are being less and less required for, by Hollywood blockbusters and often in times they're brought on to do things that they wouldn't want to do. Mm. And uh, this was for another film, but they used it as an idea of what they were up against in the thing. But when they were working on Alien vs. Predator Requiem, they created this rather cool-looking, if a, in in that kind of MTV cool kind of yeah. way, looking version of its title monster. There, the Pred Alien, yeah, which yeah. is like the Alien Predator mix. And they were very happy with the result. The directors were very happy with the result. Then the studio came in and looked at it, and they were quite happy with it. But they wanted another opinion, and so one of the studio heads there uh, had their um, thirteen-year-old 
nephew with them and brought them in a room and said, do you like this? And he said, eh, yeah, it's okay. And on that basis, they decided to completely scrap it. No. Oh. And he said, this is the kind of thinking that they were up against with Thing. Was what, the moment it got to the studios, the moment their work got to the studios, it was, okay, but what would the 13-year-old think of this? And that's where this film fails. It's yeah, because yeah. these studios have got, these, these kind of executives have got a, an entirely different market in mind for this film. And in trying to make it tailored for both, they've reached no one. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine anybody, even from a studio head point of view, watching John Carpenter's original film with Rob Bottin's fantastic practical effects with the effects as well of the late Stan Winston during the uh, the dog kennel scene. I can't imagine them making, deciding, oh, let's eat, whether it's a prequel or a remake or a sequel, can't imagine them doing something to the thing, a continuation of some sort, and their first thinking not being, oh, well, clearly we have to do it practically. Yeah, especially when, I mean... The effects in the thing are, are really amazing and they're really great. But the fact that there have been many advances in yes. that field since mm-hmm. that make it look even better. But it's yeah. still practical. It's all real. It's all there in camera. Yeah. You can see it on the video and it's it's really good. Yeah. And the fact that they decide, nah, 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 it's not very good. Yeah. And then they replace it with something that's even worse. And mm-hmm. it's just like, this doesn't make any sense. The main one is actually, the thing that really struck me is... um. Obviously, I'm just looking at the, the back of the, the, the John Carpenter thing, but you've got the two heads melded together. Yeah. And if you look at the ADI video, they uh, they have a demonstration of the, the practical version of those two heads melded together. Yeah. And it looks really, really good. It looks like great. The, 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 the animatronics of the faces, it looks it looks real. Yeah. I mean, I was showing it to Jess last night, and she was like, wow, that's really realistic. And then when you watch it on the film, it's just like, it looks like the fucking Scorpion King. It looks like a cutscene <laughs> from the PS2 video yeah. game. It looks terrible. Yeah. And it, it makes a mockery of that image because that image is very famous of those two heads. Exactly, yeah. I mean, can you imagine them as well watching it in the screening and saying, oh, well, these practical effects are outdated. Let's replace it with subpar CGI. Yeah. It's not even, let's replace it with the best CGI we can. It's it's truly subpar. When you're dealing with films that are effects heavy, but say they have a combination of lots of different things, it's the person that knows what works best in what situation because yeah. cgi is great but when you put it and apply it in certain situations and you give it the time mm-hmm. and uh, you're doing something that it's good at doing whereas if you're saying oh, let's just slap cgi on this mm-hmm. with very little thought uh, it's always going to come off as looking a bit crap no matter how much effort and time somebody's going to put in if it's been executed badly from the start in terms of the decision making processes you're not going to come out with something that's that good one thing as well that has to be mentioned is the fact that something that these two films share in terms of the production history and what we've briefly touched upon is that they're both marred by reshoots. Well, I say I use the word marred, but perhaps not for John Carpenter's film. But both films had significant reshoots. In this one, as we've spoke about, those reshoots have been used to achieve these kind of CGI scenes and add a couple of extra jump scares to it. Whereas when we look at John Carpenter's film and we look at how those reshoots have been implemented, what they've essentially done is he made the film and when he edited it afterwards, he was not happy with half of it. He said um, he wanted to reshoot half the film. And so I think it was like a year later, they went back and reshot 
entire chunks of the film and you wouldn't know it by looking at it. No. And um, I wanted to say that reshoots necessarily not be a bad thing. We often are scared of reshoots today in the modern world. For some reason, any time that um, a film is mentioned to have reshoots. And I really wanted to use the thing just for a moment as a great example of what can be achieved when a director is given the opportunity to stand back and look at his entire work and say, realistically, that doesn't work. This doesn't Mm. work. Let's go again. I feel like far few people are given that opportunity these days. And when it is, it's a studio note that's come through. It's a studio put. It's a studio push that, ah, oh, and you know, you know what? Like even thinking about some of the things that they added to John Carpenter's films, it's like, like I say, it's these um these long silences as well between characters. And, and you know what I love about the gaps in that film is, Ennio Morricone's music is very minimalist and it's often barely heard at all. Mm. You know, it's just influencing the feel and the paranoia, and oftentimes it's just like a single high strings, you know, violin. Or oftentimes you can barely hear it just um, underneath. Obviously, everybody remembers the dun-dun-dun-dun noise. But we compare it to this film, uh, Marco Beltrami's score, although it has a couple of nods to Inyo Morricone's film, which I'm not too fussed about either way. I'm not, I, mm. I, 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 I never really fall for kind of these self-referential nods. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather go do something different. He does do something different in that it's mostly just noise the entire time. It's very loud and very noisy throughout. From uh, And uh, that's typical, I would say, of Marco Beltrami of the genre. And also typical of studio horror films today. They're, they're often or maybe should I say silences. Marco Blantrami. <laughs> There's nothing... I, when you get a Marco Beltrami score, it's just like... It's just a perfect example of uh, the word serviceable. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Not exceptional, but serviceable. I say even in the 82 film, yeah, it's an NEO... Morricone score but it owes a lot to the scores that John Carpenter was creating himself Mm -hmm. it seemed like he did have a very clear hand on what he wanted from the music and John Carpenter is one of the masters of minimalist film scoring um, which I love I I find a lot of film music to be too busy yeah and um, there's not enough restraint and I fucking hate things that are like epic for epic's sake and things yeah. like that. The one thing that really stuck out at me that I thought was that I really... I mean, it may not be Marco Beltrami, this may be a music editor's or a sound effects editor's yeah. decision, but uh, there, there is a jump scare oh, in the ice room yeah. scene when they've got the ice box there, and, like the block of ice, and there's a jump scare, which is done with a cut, but it's it's also... They've put in a, an orchestra hit yeah. um, there as well, which I just went, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> it's that was outdated in 90s slasher movies yeah. when it was used at its peak yeah. it was already a blight then and so many years later a decade later yeah. still I mean, going the, back I mean, to the jump scare was cheap but it made it even cheaper yeah and that's the thing I mean we look at John Carpenter's film um, I was speaking to you about this beforehand but the jump scare in that film which is Windows on his own in the dark and something walks in front of the camera in front of him and that's the thing that leads him to commit suicide it's like it's a jump scare that's used to illustrate just how terrified that character is to put us in the same frame of mind as that character who is about to kill himself Mm. that's a jump scare that serves a purpose all right yeah it's got like a a beat and and you know because it has um this uh john carpenter i guess synthy sound with it as well as it walks past this blast but also it's it's getting us in that place it's getting us Mm. In this film, it's just a cheap moment. 
the character feels nothing about that scare afterwards. He's just yeah, there's no context away. to yeah. it at all. It's just a moment that the studios clearly said, all right, we're, we're dropping out here. We need a scare. Mm. All this stuff really adds up to the fact that this has been spearheaded by people who lack confidence yeah. in their own work and what their output is. Mm-hmm. That is the linchpin of it all. It's lacking of confidence and conviction. Yeah, absolutely. And it... Um concludes in an incredibly unsatisfying way i would say also Mm. that also feels it's the one moment you have the chance to do something interesting with the end of the film something that challenges convention in terms of um how these characters are going to react to a certain revelation Mm. and instead they take it it's marred by the most obvious studio tampering you've seen, hmm. which is the, uh, I guess, the Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Edgerton scene at the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about what happens there? Well, it's the... Uh, I suppose it's kind of a continuation of what might have happened at the end of the original thing where you just get the two characters left at the end and then they yeah. go, what now? Mm-hmm. And they're just waiting and they're not quite sure what to do. Uh, but this sort of decides to take it on a little bit further. And, well, as the film plays out, it's basically obvious that, oh, this Joel Edgerton character isn't the Joel Edgerton we've seen because he lacks his earring. And then she burns him. Oh, yeah, he is the alien the end. Yeah. And He uh, gives us alien roar that's clearly yeah. just been dubbed over the top. Yeah, and uh, it's just a bit like, what was the point in that if that was the actual eventual yeah. conclusion? You could see that at one time there was a much braver ending there, which was just going to leave it as a question mark over. Perhaps he had just lost his earring in a normal way, mm. just it had fallen off at some point, and then she burns him yeah. through, out of fear, yeah, out of pure fear and paranoia. Probably which is the in, whole point in a of moment the... that would have got as close to John Carpenter's film as you could have got. Yeah, which is the whole point of the original film. It's just yeah. all about paranoia. Yeah, it just chickens out, really. It does, and because it makes it so it just obvious... It goes for the obvious. Yeah, because it makes it so obvious that he is the thing with the, the dubbing and stuff like that. And I had the director try and persuade, like, oh, it's um, oh, perhaps the screams are just what she's hearing. And it's like, yeah, no, no. No. It's clearly there. And also, he goes for the wrong ear as well. Like, they make it doubly obvious by him forgetting which ear he had an earring in. Yeah, yeah. Like, just because they make it so obviously that he is the thing, it also makes the thing, sh- like, far dumber again. Yeah, once more, because creature, yeah. just just a moment before, she hands him the flamethrower. Like, he's in a position of power, and he just hands it back to her. Mm. It's like, this is the woman that's completely undone. All of your plans as the creature, the thing. <laughs> you have the opportunity to finally... You have the flamethrower now. You can assimilate her instantly. <laughs> And instead, it just hands her the flamethrower back. Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of inconsistencies in terms of the way that it thinks, which means that I, I just can't see this as a character that follows on to John yeah. Carpenter's film. And people have said, oh, it's a learning curve. But I, I would buy that if this wasn't a creature whose whole existence relied on perfect imitation. Yeah. Like, it's like, no, it's not a learning curve. This is just a dumb film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Essentially, yeah. And I think the other thing we haven't touched on as well is the the fact that we go inside the spaceship. Oh, God. And it's just like, I didn't know it was actually going to do this, but when I went into it, I was like, I don't want to go inside here. Nope. Not I don't want to see what this looks like. These are some mysteries that don't need to be answered. Yeah. But even though they do go inside, I don't particularly want to see inside, but they still have the opportunity of doing something incredibly otherworldly. Yeah. And don't. 
It looks like a, I don't know, it looks like the set of some sci-fi TV series. It does, it does, with some kind of Tetris machine half in the middle of it. No, I actually put, I looked like um, fucking Pixels, the movie. It did, yeah. Like, you know, the big um, Pac-Man that they have on yes. the poster, it looked like that. It does, I, you're absolutely right. And I was just like... Which also was a last-minute replacement. Yeah. I'd say that's probably the lowest point of the film mm-hmm. when they're in the thing, because you've got the whole... Um, I keep saying Davidoff attacks, but the that guy... Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Um, <laughs> well, the lead... The Sanders. Lead, or thing, the yeah. lead doctor guy. Yeah. When he's, his face is, like, morphed onto the it's creature. Awful. It looks like... I say it looked a cross between... There's a Doctor Who episode called The Lazarus Effect or something, where it's like a, it's like a creature like that, but it's obviously on a TV budget. Which is fair enough. It still not doesn't look great even mm-hmm. for a TV budget, but it looked like that. And then again, it looked like Scorpion King. Yeah, it and does. It's like oh, because even the face mapping on it as well. It's like it's floating on yeah. this uh, blob, or, like this this mass, and um, yeah, the shiny face. Again, that's all reshot. That's all um, reshot material. And in mm. fact, when she actually enters the craft and is walking around this uh, this Pac Man pixels thing. The reason that looks the way it does and as wide as it does, taking up as much space, is simply because it's digitally overlaid a um, practical effect that was there, which was the pilot of the ship. Ah. Uh, in a much like a uh, space jockey moment, she managed to get to the center and the pilot of the ship is still there and still alive and it's moving and it's this alien thing that we've never seen and it's the thing. And that's when it attacks her. And it's like, okay, the moment you got to the chance to show something truly alien, mm. don't do it. <laughs> you don't, you don't you chicken out and uh, go with something. Oh, is that the thing with the um in the in the reel with, with the, the eyes? eyes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That looked really cool. Yeah, that was that was what was at the center. Oh fuck! That was what the film was building up to, and that's what I think is supposed to attack her. And it's then... just again, it's just moronic that you spend more money to cover up money well spent. Yeah, there's no excuse for it. No, there there's isn't. There's literally no excuse for it. I mean, like I said, it wouldn't have been a great film anyway, but at least it would have had something about it to actually yeah, yeah. make me go and want to see it. Even if I would have came out and it had the exact same script that it did, which, um, again, I think is it's a redundant film, it's a badly written film, and it doesn't do anything new. At least afterwards I could have said, you know what, but the special effects were fucking great. It really did, like, Rob Bottin and Stan Winston proud, and you haven't seen effects done in this kind of way in this kind of yeah. movie. There's a film that I imagine that you still would have watched. Yeah. It would have at least had some saving grace. Yeah, and yet it didn't, and I didn't go and see it until now, because I yeah. had to. Yes. <laughs> you made me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so um, sorry. And again, that's why, yeah, it's just frittered away. Yeah. In in the ether. And like again, it's not even um it's not even done any damage to the, the original thing. Cause it's just so uh yeah, because that doesn't really have much of a a relationship with it. Which um brings me on to the the linking scene. They have this linking scene to lead directly into the events of the original film, and they have the audacity to break it up with the credits. Yeah. It's actually when the film actually looks most closest to yeah. John Carpenter's film, and they uh, they deal with it in such a disrespectful manner. Yeah. It's an afterthought. Yeah. I remember just flicking through just to test my copy of it on silence, not knowing what the soundtrack would be like. And then I was just like, oh, whoa. It's like, why are they having like three title cards in between this? Yeah, and I, was like, yeah the, and I was like, yeah, the sound effects go underneath it, but even so, it's just like, why not just play the scene in full? Yeah, and then cut to the credits as soon as you have the shot and the echo of the shot. Yeah, that's a perfect place to 
I imagine credits because it's the closest to John Carpenter's film in that part. I imagine that someone at the studio was watching. Um, oh, you know what? This is boring. End the film now. The film's already over. End it. I imagine that's what's happened. Mm. Um, that's it strikes me anyway. The, the type of thinking that's marred this film all the way through its production. Oh, the last thing to talk about is the fucking fillings. Oh yeah, thing. of course. I just didn't understand the logic behind the fillings scene because what happens if you didn't have any fillings in the first place? Well, I think. I mean, I I don't mind the fillings. I just don't think they do anything interesting with it. They just use it as an as a ch- like chance to just repeat the thing again. Mm. But I like the idea that it essentially it's not as good as the McCready test, the blood test. That yeah, he does. yeah. And it essentially puts a group of people together who may or may not be the thing. Mm. Heightens that paranoia. But the one thing I will say about this is, you know what, McCready came up with this blood test. This, uh, he's a pilot. Yeah. He is a pilot and he came up with this foolproof idea to <laughs> test which one and it worked perfectly. He's not a scientist. No. Nope. This is a fucking base full of scientists. Yeah, not a single like one a of them comes up with it. As well. Yeah. <laughs> I liked the idea earlier on where it rejects the, the, the plate yes. in, the, in the guy's arm and that's why they find it in the autopsy. And I like how she finds the fillings on the floor and stuff like that. I just don't know why it just wouldn't create the organic material around the filling or around the plate. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's a perfect imitation. Yeah. The thing is, even in John Carpenter's film, it's so perfect an imitation that it imitates somebody's dodgy heart. Mm. It imitates somebody's bad heart Mm. and that leads to them having a heart attack yeah later on so even if we apply that kind of logic of it of that's how meticulous it is in recreating somebody why doesn't it just create the organic material around it so yeah i I think even when you start to apply thoughts yeah and i just thought it was just a dumb looking scene like it just just these people opening up their mouths and having a torch but it's just like is this what it's come to? <laughs> I was just like, this is not... A, and even the one of the characters said, there's too many variables in this. I was like, yeah, the fucking is. And you know what? This is the single scene in which the film fails completely in believability whatsoever. Because, I mean, I'm saying this, an English guy with no fillings? <laughs> that's, that's unheard of. That is frankly unheard of. Well, I'm English. I have no feelings. I'll give you some. <laughs> but no, well, yeah. if I'd been on that, I've been. If I'd been there, I'd been screwed. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I like the idea of the feelings, but I don't like the execution because, as well, not only do we get this goofy scene where they're just looking inside people's mouths, but also it, um, it's just hitting a beat again. Mm. It's just hitting another beat because it's forgotten about a couple of scenes later. I mean, we get a moment of paranoia where there's this conflict between who do we trust? And then that's forgotten like Mm. three minutes later because it's revealed, oh, oh, that person's the thing. So yeah, it's just just hitting the beat because that's what John Carpenter's film did. Mm. So I guess that's our experience with Van Helsing's The Thing. (laughs) Now that we've buried this movie in the snow, it's time for us to ask why this monster mash was forgotten. To answer that question, we must turn to how the movie was received on release. Did this movie open to a warm reception, or was the box office too cold a place for this prequel to survive? It's time for the stats and facts. First up, what did the critics make of The Ting? Okay, so here's The Ting above The Ting. <laughs> well, the uh, reception was uh, muted. Yes. 
it's not like it's not downright awful, but I'd yeah. say muted is the, the the correct phrase. On Rotten Tomatoes, the uh, the rating is thirty five percent rotten. Okay, uh, with an average rating of five out of ten, and the consensus is it serves the best serviceable minimum for a horror flick, <laughs> but the thing. Not that thing. Um, <laughs> is all boost scares and a slave to the far superior John Carpenter version. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty much uh, conclusive statement there. 42% of audiences liked it, and they gave it an average rating of 3.1 out of 5. Okay. As well, and that's based on over 40,000 people. 40,000? Mm. Wow. Well, if we think about that as well, last week we did Alien vs. Predator, and that had over 400,000 people rating it as yeah. 40,000. This, yeah. this has missed an audience yeah. completely. And uh, Empire gave it 3 out of 5, which is definitely more than generous. By no means the finessed work of a carpenter. Whoa. Uh, more an enthusiastic <laughs> DIY expert who read the instructions once and <laughs> reckons he can manage. <laughs> which means that the shelves are a bit wonky, but at least they'll stay in place. <laughs> I mean, I don't agree with his rating, but that's, that's a perfect a summation. Yeah, it's, it's a really funny review. <laughs> okay. And uh, our dear friend, Roger Ebert, dearly departed. Um, I don't know why I'm saying that. Um, <laughs> and uh, he gives it 2.5 out of 4, which apparently is the same rating he gave the original. Um, I don't think Roger Ebert ever really got the thing. No, I think he said it was too violent and too mm. gory and uh, too downbeat as yeah. well. Yeah, I think, always think Roger Ebert has uh, issues with violence and downbeat things I, I anyway. absolutely agree. So uh, he's not always a good measure of a quality of those kinds of films. No, I think he can be somewhat predictable as well in terms of uh, what, what he's going to enjoy and not, and sometimes yeah. for not good reason. Yeah, yeah. He says, though, this version of the thing directed by... I'm going to try and pronounce it now. Mathis van Helsingen Jr. Heidingen. I can't fucking pronounce this. Um, van Helsing. Yeah. Uh, if uh, anyone knows how to pronounce this properly, uh, just email us to our non-existent email. <laughs> um, this guy, um, this this some guy, uh, provides such graphic and detailed views of the creature that we are essentially reduced to looking at special effects and being aware that we are. Think how little you ever really saw in the first Alien movie and how frightening it was. I expect this movie will do well at the box office. Mm. Uh, It has a lot of gory gotcha moments and many scenes in which an endless supply of things are incinerated by flamethrowers. It seems like such an ignominious end for such a versatile species. Which is um, strange that he gives it the same rating as the uh, 82 thing, but still seems to think that he's still sort of hinting at that the original's better. Yeah, yeah, it um, does seem that way. I wonder yeah. if his opinion has changed on the yeah, original yeah. the years since. Yeah, I, and I'm thinking he may be maybe one of these people that was caught up in that whole summer of E.T. Yeah. thing as well. So IMDb gives this 6.2 out of 10, which I think is definitely uh, over generous, especially when you compare it to how it scored John Carpenter's The Thing, which it gives 8.2 out of 10, so only two points higher. Yeah, I think John Carpenter's film is actually in the IMDb top 250 films of all time, mm. which goes to show just how highly regarded it is now for this little box office flop of the year it was released. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think some of the actual reviews were probably a little bit too generous to it, but I definitely think the the reception was uh, very much sort of um, 
Golf claps. D- yeah, yeah, it was. I'd say it probably deserves slightly worse, but yeah, yeah it got what it deserved, essentially. Mm. So moving on to the box office, this film had a budget of $38 million, and that's the reported budget after reshoots, I imagine. Mm. So they went pumping a massive amount into it, but this is still... It's still fairly decent for a horror film today, especially considering that studios like to make horror films for about, you know, one to five million. Yeah. And then turn over a huge profit. That's the way horror films are made now. It's all about those micro budgets. So they had an opportunity to do something really different with a horror film. Yeah. To really make a monster movie. And uh, they failed. Yeah. So uh, let's see how that is reflected in terms of the box office. It opened to 8.5 million dollars on its uh, week of release it opened to number three and overall domestically it made 16 million dollars and uh ouch uh, <laughs> coupled with foreign it made just 27 million it only made 10.5 million dollars mm. internationally yeah so yeah just under 30 million worldwide that is a truly poor performance and i mean even to compare it to like last week we had alien vs predator on that was in cinemas yeah. for what did you say it was like over 100 days 100 112 days 112 days this was in release for 35 days oh that's so they might have obviously just pulled the plug on it they i think they probably realized what they had done yeah and just shoved it under the carpet before it destroyed any legacies yeah yeah wow that's that's exceptionally short that's I can't believe that's any in circulation. That's, that's almost like a, a limited release. Yeah. I mean, so it's like we should have put this straight to DVD. <laughs> and so this... Double pack with a thing. <laughs> straight away. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was double pack with a thing straight away. It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can always tell that something's not done well when it's... Uh... Yeah, and it's double packed with John Carpenter's The Thing, but I remember when it came out, it was only like two pounds more to get John Carpenter's <laughs> The Thing. I remember that there's a Mike and the Mechanics album called Rewired, and it failed so badly on release that six months after it was released, it was repackaged with Mike and the Mechanics' greatest hits, so people <laughs> would buy it. Uh, and this sounds like a similar situation. <laughs> it, yeah, it definitely seems that way. And uh, in its week of release, these are the films that it went up against. Real Steel was at number one, which is uh, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, the movie. Oh my god, I remember that. Yeah. At number two, we had the remake of Footloose, which I forgot even existed. Yep. Uh, Number three was The Thing. Number four was The Ides of March. I think you went to go see that, I've got that in. I've got that on Blu-ray. Number five was Dolphin Tale. Six, Moneyball, the fantastic Moneyball. Yeah, yeah. Seven, again, fantastic 50-50. Number eight was... Where are all the good films at the bottom of the list? I know. Yeah, well, they've been out for a few weeks oh, at this right. point. But number eight was a film I've never heard of called Courageous. Uh, nope. Number nine was The Big Year. Oh, my gosh. This was a bomb. Oh, this was an even bigger bomb than The Thing. The Big Year, I think, was the Jack Black, Steve Martin, and Owen Wilson film. I think it's Owen Wilson where they go looking for the uh, the birds. Okay. They go look... They, it's called The Big Year when you... It's bird spotting. It's uh, supposed to be a bird spotting comedy. Right. And they go around the world trying to spot wow. all the different birds. It had a budget. Right. That's the story. How boring does that sound? How yep. bland. With those particular actors at that particular time in their career doing a film about bird spotting. Yeah. It had a budget of forty one million. Fuck. It opened to number nine <laughs> with three point two million. Ah, it wasn't such a big year for them. <laughs> And number 10 was the re-release of Lion King, which was on its fifth week. And overall, at that point, they still made 90 million. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, yeah, if we compare that to John Carpenter's The Thing, 
John Carpenter's a thing, not adjusting for inflation. It opened to three million and then went on to make nineteen million domestically. Yeah. Just domestically. So even domestically unadjusted, it made more than yeah. this film. And that's still a film that's regarded as a, a massive disappointment. And that was on a budget of fifteen million. Yeah. Less than half. So just saying, just throwing yeah. it out there. It's uh that was regarded as a huge flop and it still made more money. Okay, so that leaves me to just ask the two questions that I ask at the end of every single episode of Best Forgotten Movies. And that is, first up, are you any closer to understanding why The Thing 2011 by Van Helsing has been forgotten? Yep, uh, because it's redundant, dumb, and not even its effects can save it because they've been overwritten. Yes. With uh, CGI tipex. It's that first word that you mentioned that I will always go back to because even if this film was at its best in every single other department, at the end of the day, it is a film that is answering a question that nobody is asking. Nobody wants to know what's happened to the Norwegian crew because we already know. We already have the answers and it's that inherent redundancy that ultimately undoes anything that they could have really done with Mm -hmm. the film. By making it a prequel... Straight off, they've set off on the wrong foot. It was always destined to be forgotten because of that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. And moving on, is The Thing one of the best of the forgotten movies? Or should it simply remain best forgotten? I think this one should stay out in the cold. Yeah. No warm bodies for this thing. Nah, I think we should apply a flamethrower to this one. Yeah, let's incinerate this bitch. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely a best forgotten film. Uh, I think it's time that we actually started, you know, covering some best of the forgotten yeah, movies. I'm getting yeah. really bored of reviewing these obviously shit films. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think uh, you know, fingers crossed. Soon we'll be starting to re- yep. cover some more questionable films Mm. okay and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe you can also find us on facebook and twitter at b4 movies so please get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes also if you have the time to help us continue grow our fan base please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the itunes store join us next time as we'll be swapping flamethrowers and Mutant aliens for Austrian oaks, as we'll be taking on John McTernan's Arnold Schwarzenegger Stara, the last action hero. But until then, it's bye from myself and fuck off from Andy. <laughs>